Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. So today we're in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to go through verses 6 through 9 and talk about how to have peace. We know that the ultimate promise is peace on earth one day. And God accomplished that peace by offering his son as a propitiation to appease God's uh, wrath towards sin and to satisfy God's justice. That's on a global scale, universal scale, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have individual peace or that we have peace in our own hearts. Yes, God has made peace with the world that was at enmity with him, but how are you feeling in your heart? It's hard to have peace in a world that is so messy and mixed up. We see countries at war. We see innocent people dying, being bombed, starving, freezing. We see injustice. Uh, we see inequities. We see prejudice. We see poverty. and. We may be in a bubble where we don't experience those things, but most of the world, I guarantee you, is not experiencing the kind of peace they would like to have. Anxiety over the problems that we face in life and just the world that we live in is a very, very real and common problem. And even though God has promised the world peace, many of us, even believers, will live with anxiety and worry about things in the future. And it eats at us. Someone said a, a worry is like a small trickle of fear that meanders through the mind until it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. So it tends to have an eroding effect on our souls in our hearts. So how do we deal with the things that we would worry about that would steal or rob our peace that we want to have? We all want to have peace and many people search for it in different ways. They try to find it maybe in the bottle and that changes their mind and heart and chemistry or drugs that puts them in a uh, blissful somber uh, slumber. Uh, maybe even binge watching TV to avoid the problems that they face in life. Or maybe some people escape in their hobbies and find peace in their hobbies. But that's a good, good reason to have a hobby, I think, is to get your mind off of your work and worries. My hobbies, I like to fish and hunt and be outdoors. And when, I'm, when I am, I'm at peace because I'm not thinking about anything else except for what's around me. And it's a very peaceful surrounding usually. Um, we try to escape in many different ways. Some people can't do it so well and they end up having a mental breakdown or nervous breakdown or something worse. But what is our first resort when we hear about that problem, when we face a difficulty or a trial? What's our first resort when, when there's a family issue that comes up, a family conflict? We tend to worry about it, don't we? What's our first resort when we look at our finances and we suddenly need to have 
a, a new water heater in the house. We don't have enough money for that. We tend to worry about where is that going to come from? Or somebody who has treated us wrongly, uh, lied about us and it's costing us at our work or in our relationships. Or what about when you get that bad doctor's report uh, that's, that leaves you with uncertainty and a lot of ambiguity because they didn't know exactly what the problem was. So we tend to worry about these kinds of things in life. That's usually our first resort and that causes stress and stress causes problems. Medically, it's, I think, proven that stress is responsible for many kinds of uh, problems that can lead to emotional, mental, physical, spiritual issues just because we worry and get stressed about it. But you know, they say that only 10% of the things we worry about are legitimate concerns. 90% of the things we worry about never even happen. And yet we're worrying about that thin margin of 10% only. Well, Paul is still addressing issues in the Philippian church when he writes from his prison cell. He, he himself has all kinds of conflicts, so it's odd that he would write about having peace. But he also knows that there's conflicts in the church. There are false teachers who are trying to bring the Philippian church back in under the law or into other types of errors. And he also knows that there are even people in the church, like the two ladies he mentions in verse, chapter 4, verse 2, Judea and Syntyche, who are at odds with each other and causing a problem. And evidently, such a big problem, it's disrupting the church and um, causes Paul to make a comment about it. So he's still addressing these kind of issues, but the book of Philippians really focuses on how we ought to think. And it all really centers on Jesus Christ. Paul says in chapter one, for me to live in is Christ. Christ is really the answer, isn't he? He's the answer to our problems. He's the answer to divisions. He's the answer to really to having peace. And it's really how we think about him and how we appropriate his life into our life. For me to live is Christ. I'm to live like Christ. To live like Christ, I must think like Christ. And so he says in chapter two, verse five, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He wants us to have the same mindset that Jesus Christ had. And that mindset, he goes on to explain, is the mindset of a servant, a humble servant, who uh, is, is here to look after and serve and meet the needs of others and put others ahead of ourselves. So there's a lot about thinking in the book of Philippians and how we are to think, and it's to think like Christ and to be like him. And this passage is going to talk to us quite a bit about thinking as well. And he's going to, he, he says this passage on the heels of what we looked at last time in verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So he tells us that we should be rejoicing. Now here he is in a prison cell, facing with all kinds of, faced with all kinds of problems and uncertainties. And he has plenty of reasons to worry. And yet he is telling them to, re, to rejoice and assuming that he himself is rejoicing. Can we re really rejoice and be peaceful in the midst of trials and tribulations and problems in life? Well, Paul seems to think we can. So let me read uh, from verse six to nine. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Now you notice right away that he starts out in verse 6 by talking about the peace of God and he ends in verse 9 by talking about the God of peace. He inverts the words. So this whole section has to do with enjoying the peace that God offers to us. And the first thing he tells us in verse 6 is don't worry. Be anxious for nothing. The word anxious means to be agitated, divided, distracted. Um, you know what it means because we practice it all the time, don't we? We worry, we get anxious about things. It brings to mind the story of Mary and Martha when Jesus came to visit them, you remember? And um, Mary sat at Jesus' feet, but Martha was running around trying to get the food ready and scolds Mary, says, Lord, why don't you tell her to get up and help me? I've got all this work to do. And what did Jesus say to Martha? Martha, you're worried about many things. You're distracted, you're agitated. Look at, look at Mary, she's chosen the better thing. So we can make a choice to be agitated or to be focused on Jesus Christ. Be anxious for nothing. Don't be agitated and upset. And then he says, uh, be anxious for nothing. So that's, a, that's kind of a big term, isn't it? That's inclusive. And nothing means uh, even the big things in life. Don't just be anxious about uh, your water heater that is broken, but don't be anxious about the report that you might have cancer or that your family member has been in an accident. We're to remain at peace even, I mean, we surely could be concerned about those things, but do we have to be anxious or agitated? Is God not in control when we hear those things? Be anxious for nothing, and nothing includes an awfully large category of things. In fact, it includes everything that we might encounter in life. And so our first resort is exactly what he's wanting to counter. Our first resort when we're faced with a problem or an issue is to worry. And he says, don't be anxious for anything. Be anxious for nothing. Uh, don't fret over what's happening to you. And I think the secret here goes back to what he said in chapter two. The secret is not to be so concerned about what's happening to me, but focus on what's happening to other people. Look after others' needs. And when we're looking after others' needs, we, our needs will be met and we won't be worrying about ourselves there's something that we can do about our situation, we can talk to God about it. And that's what he goes on to say. And so what he goes on to say is when we, to have peace, we need to pray. In fact, he says three things, and I'm gonna tell you a little bit of outline for the rest of the passage. He's gonna say there's, there's three ways to win over worry. First is pray right, second, think right, and third, do right. That's the passage that we're going to look at now. First of all, we need to pray right. And so it says, instead of being anxious, you have an option. And that option is in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
So don't be anxious for anything, but in everything, you can always go to God in prayer. And going to God in prayer is where we find our, our happy place, our peaceful place. Now, he uses four words for prayer here. So he wants to really cover the, cover the gambit of, of what prayer is and should be. He says, uh, in everything by prayer. And, that, and the word prayer there is just a, more of a general word for prayer of approaching God and talking to him. And that's what prayer is, right? A conversation with God. And then he uses the word in the New King James Version as supplication, prayer and supplication. Supplication has more to do with bringing special needs to God and petitioning him for, for certain things, uh, very specific items that we would ask him for. Another important part of prayer is thanksgiving that he mentions, with thanksgiving. Uh, is it really right to come and ask God for things that we might want or need? and not recognize the answers that he's given us to past prayers and how he has provided for us in the past and be thankful for that? Shouldn't all of our prayers contain thanksgiving to God for the things that he's done and prayers that he's answered in the past? Of course they could. And wouldn't that incline God, if he can be so influenced, I don't know, but wouldn't that incline God to be more ready to answer our prayers if we were thankful to him for the prayers he has answered? Would you be inclined to give a, a present to a child if that child never ever thanked you for it? And as he grew older, he still, every birthday you give him a present, he, she never thanks you for it. And would you be inclined to want to give a present? You might feel obligated because the child's in your family, but would you really want to give presents to a child who is unthankful and has never said thank you for one of the presents throughout his or her lifetime? I don't think that we would really feel like giving to that person. It's funny, but uh, uh, one of my grandchildren, we, we gave uh, a gift to, and uh, I asked him, I said, uh, he, I, he never said thank you. So when he was visiting with us, I said, how did you like the so-and-so? I forget, I forget now what it was. Oh, it was, it was nice. Did you really like it? Yeah, it was nice. <laughs> Just trying to fish that thank you out of them, but kids these days, boy, they get everything they want, don't they? So thankfulness is a heart attitude that realizes that we're really helpless before God and that what we have is that by His grace. And when we come to Him with that attitude, isn't He more likely to answer our, our prayers for the things that we bring to Him? So we thank Him for past blessings. We thank Him for meeting our needs. It's, it's almost a condition uh, for wanting and having the privilege of asking him for new things is to thank him for the old things that he's given to us and answered. And then he says, uh, let your requests be made known to God. Now here's the very specific things that you ask for. You have the requests. And we all come to God in prayer for requests. Lord, help my, uh, help my mother. She's having a hard time. Lord, help my child, he's turning away from you. Lord, you know, whatever, whatever the prayer request is, we, we have millions and millions of them, but the specific request, notice that Paul puts those last in the list of four aspects of prayer, the requests are last. We don't just pray to God and say, Lord, here's my list of things I want, one, two, three, four, five, 
No, I think there's a more respectful approach. When we come to him in prayer, we come thankfully, we come humbly, we lay our requests before him, and uh, we just don't come demanding things uh, right up front. So in my personal prayer life, the way I practice it is I try to begin, <clears throat> I follow a simple acronym, not exactly following this pattern, but I'll share it with you. It's uh, from the book of Acts, A-C-T-S, adoration, A, adoration, C, confession, T, thanksgiving, and S, supplication. So when I practice my prayer life, I try to go to God first, praising Him for something and uh, some attribute or something I appreciate about Him recently or just read in Scripture because it's usually combined with devotions. And then I confess to Him where I feel like I've perhaps let him down and lost fellowship with him in certain areas. And then the T, uh, I thank him <clears throat> for answers to prayer and for all the blessings that we have and enjoy. And then for S, finally, supplications. That's when I bring my requests at the end of my prayer. So I try to practice that pattern. I'll just pass that on to you. If it works for you, great. If it doesn't, do your own thing. But that just is a way that keeps me on track when I'm praying. I, I keep my supplications last. And, you know, what, he, what he's saying here is instead of being anxious for anything, in everything, this is how we should pray. Everything, everywhere, all the time, for things small, for things large, everything. There's nothing too big for God. You can ask him for big things. There's nothing too small for God. You can ask Him for small things. Do you ever ask Him for a parking space? You know, Lord, my knee's hurting. I don't want to do so much walking. Could you open up a parking space? That's my prayer quite frequently. Not these days since I've got them fixed, but... Well, you're going through Walmart and you can't find something. Lord... I'm wasting time here. Can you just show me where this is? <laughs> There's no clerk around that to ask. It sounds stupid, doesn't it? I ask God for stupid things all the time. And he answers quite often. Lord, I can't find my key. Could you help me find my key? Lord, where is my phone? I mean, it's it's little thing. Is there anything too small for God? Is there anything too small if your son or your daughter were to come to you and ask you for help. Wouldn't you be willing, no matter how small it is, to help them? Isn't God a better father than we would ever be, or mother, as a parent? And then is there anything too big that someone could ask for? Well, you would want your child to achieve the big things in life as well. And so God, I think, treats us the same way. Nothing too small, nothing too big, in everything. Bring it to God. James Vernon McGee, well-known Bible teacher, quotes uh, a mystic named Fenelon from the Middle Ages who encouraged praying like this. And I'm going to read Fenelon's words. He says, Tell God all that is in your heart as one unloads one's heart, its pleasures and its pains to a dear friend. Tell him your troubles, that he may comfort you. Tell him your joys, that he may sober them. Tell him your longings, that he may purify them. Tell him your dislikes, that he may help you conquer them. Talk to him of your temptations, that he may shield you from them. 
Show him the wounds of your heart that he may heal them. Lay bare your indifference to good, your depraved tastes for evil, your instability. Tell him how self-love makes you unjust to others, how vanity tempts you to be insincere, how pride disguises you to yourself as to others. In other words, pray about everything. Tell him everything. Lay out your feelings and your thoughts, your temptations, your problems before him. And the result, when you do this, what he says in verse 6 and verse 7, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now in the scripture, heart and mind is often used interchangeably. It's really talking about the inner person here. I don't think there's really two separate issues or components to the human being. The peace of God will guard your, 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 your being, your heart, your mind, your, your person. And you notice he uses the phrase peace of God. And you know this is the only time in, in the New Testament that this phrase is used, peace of God. It's the only place that it's used. And I think he uses it here in the midst of just writing about the dissension that's been in the church between these two women. And people are upset about this. And yet he is saying that if you were to go to prayer and lay these things before God, then you could enjoy this peace of God. And that, that peace will act like a guard to protect your heart and your mind from, I think, further worry, agitation, and, and getting upset. It'll stand guard. The word, it'll guard your hearts and mind, has, comes from the idea of standing guard, like a military guard or a garrison. Um, you go to uh, an airport these days and there's people standing guard all over the place. You can't go in this door, you can't go out that door, you can't go through this security line, etc. There's people standing guards everywhere to protect I guess the air, airport and the other passengers. And so God places his peace around us as a perimeter of peace to keep trouble, a troubled, our hearts from being troubled. And it surpasses everything else that the world could offer. And it goes beyond understanding how we could have the peace, this kind of peace in the midst of trouble. That's how wonderful it is to Paul. He says it's a peace that passes, surpasses all understanding. We really can't explain it. How do you explain somebody who can be at peace when bombs are falling around them? How can you explain somebody that's at peace when somebody's shooting at them or, or somebody's cheating them or somebody is uh, 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 lying about them? You can have peace in those kind of situations. It can guard your heart and your mind. So he's telling us, if we want to have peace, we need to pray right. And here he tells us how we can pray correctly. And then the second thing he says in verse 8 is we need to think right. We need to think right because as we think, so we will do. And whatever we think is what we will become. And so he spends quite a bit listing how we ought to think. You see, worry, or our wrong thinking, feeds worry. We hear the news, we hear something bad about a shooting, for example, and 
let's say Colorado. <clears throat> now we're afraid to go to the grocery store in Dallas because in our minds, we play tricks on ourselves and if it's a problem there, then it's gotta be a problem here. I, I run into this all the time when I'm overseas, you know, people say, they hear the news about a shooting in America and they say, oh, everybody in America's got a gun, everybody's shooting each other. Oh, well, you and I know that's not true. That's just what hits the news. So we think, tend to think wrongly about these things and blow them out of proportion when we read the news or when we <laughs> read Facebook and the rumors that people are spreading and we buy into them and we get upset. And maybe find it hard to sleep at night worrying about these kind of things. So what's the solution to that? It's right thinking. And right thinking is what he talks about in verse eight. He says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, Okay, so he's going to list a lot of things. I already read them for you. So let's just talk about them one by one. He says, first of all, he's going to say, think on these things. That's how he ends the passage. What are we to think about? Whatever things are true. Not about rumors, not about speculation. Don't get worked up and worried about things that we can't verify. Things that aren't reliable. Don't believe everything you read on the internet. Abraham Lincoln said on the internet. <laughs> There's a meme going around <clears throat> Facebook. Abraham Lincoln says, don't believe everything you read on the internet, on Facebook. <laughs> but people can get really bent out of shape and upset about some of the, the rumors and things that go around on social media speculation about when Christ is going to return or the blood moons or the alignments of the stars or passing comet. People get worked up and it's the end of the world. Be careful of your sources. Know what is true. And God's word is always true. We start there. And think about what is true. Not what is speculation or rumors. And then he says, whatever things are noble. The word noble means honorable, worthy of respect. Think about that which is noble. Noble makes me think of people who are heroes, people who do good things, help other people. Instead of thinking about the bad guys in the world who hurt other people, think about the good guys who are helping other people, the good men and women. Good music that has noble themes and words and subjects where there's so much music that takes us to the gutter. He says, whatever things are just, and the word just here means upright or fair, something that is, implies justice towards others. Think about the things that are justice towards others. What is fair? Are people being treated fairly around you? Our thoughts ought to be trained about how we can be just towards others. He says whatever things are pure, and the word pure here, I think, 
has the idea of moral purity or cleanness, something that is without shame or without sin. Uh, pure, you know what pure means in its simplest form. Do we think about what is pure? What is our morality? What is our standard of purity? What are we willing to put up with morally in our language, in our music, in our friendships? Are they pure? And then he says, whatever things are lovely. And this word lovely here is the only time that this particular word is used in the New Testament also. And it has the idea of being winsome or amiable or pleasing. So think about the things that are, 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 are pleasing and friendly. Um, this makes me want to think of who would I choose as a role model, for example, in life? Somebody who has a pleasant attitude towards life and other people. Um, they have a winsome personality. They're not, they're not always critical, but you like to be around that person. You're attracted to them. Think about that which is lovely. And then whatever things are of good report, he says. Good report would mean that which is attractive, pleasant <clears throat> to report or to speak of. What is it that is good to talk about? Do you train your speech? and your ears to listen to what is a good report and to give a good report. That means not to always complain, and here I'm preaching to myself, not always to complain or criticize, but try to find the best and talk about the best in something. I have the spiritual gift of criticism. I can find things wrong with any movie, any song, any Christmas hymn. That's just the way my mind works. Sometimes I lose the story if I see something wrong in it that just doesn't make sense. Like when they handle a gun wrong in a movie, you know. They always cock it right before they're getting ready to shoot somebody. They should have cocked it an hour ago. <laughs> anyway. That kind of thing can ruin a movie for me. But what... So you kind of get lost in the weeds of, of the criti criticisms instead of looking at the overall bigger picture of what is good. And then he says, if there's any virtue, virtue speaks of good things. Do we look towards good things in life? Are our goals set towards good things? And then he says, if there's anything praiseworthy, praiseworthy would be especially good things, really good things, I think. Not much difference there between that which is virtuous and that which is praiseworthy. Things that are worth praising are things that we ought to think about. So that rules out a lot of things in life, a lot of behaviors that we see, words that we hear, conducts uh, of how people conduct themselves. It's not praiseworthy. We shouldn't think about it and dwell on it. We live in a real world, and of course we're confronted with all the opposites of these, this list of good things, and we have to deal with them, but that's not what we need to dwell on. Deal with them, but don't dwell on them. And we, we can live with them, but we don't have to focus on them. And we don't have to be consumed by them, because wrong thinking leads to more worry. So not only do we pray right, but we need to think right. And to, how then, you say, do we think about good things, true things, noble things, praiseworthy things. 
Where do you find those things? Well, you find them in the Bible. Let's start there. You find them in the Bible. Listen to Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. Great peace have those who love your law. A love of God's word will bring peace. Psalm 19, let the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, the psalmist prays. What he says and what he thinks, he wants to be pleasing to God. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and what will come out of you then is going to be praise and hymns and spiritual songs as you experience his grace in your hearts. So can we think right in such a wicked world? Yes, we can. Can we live in peace in such a crazy place? Yes, we can. In the midst of trials, in the midst of a storm, we can have peace if we focus on the right things. And then he says, uh, meditate on these things at the end of verse eight. Meditate on these things or think on these things. The word meditate here is a word uh, that means to thoughtfully consider something. Not just to mentally think about it, but give it thoughtful consideration. He wants us to, th to think deeply on these virtues that he has listed for us. Meditation is a practice that really I think you have to kind of learn and you have to kind of learn by practicing it. There's one level of approaching the scriptures and that's just to hear it. There's another level where we read it. There's another level where we study it to get its meaning. There's another level where we study it to find out what to do. But there's another level where we meditate on the scriptures. We carefully consider what it is saying. We chew it over and over again. We look at it from different angles. We apply it to our lives. There's so many different things you can do when you meditate on the scriptures. But it's more than just hearing or reading or studying. It's really letting God's word soak into your life to change it. The picture I always get of meditation, uh, when I talk about meditating in the scriptures, is of a cow. What do they have, three stomachs or something like that? And so they, they eat the grass and then they, they lay down and then they, I guess, regurgitate the grass and chew it and it goes down into another stomach. So the first time they're just grazing and in in incorporating the grass. The second time they're chewing and getting the nourishment from it, I guess, and it goes maybe into a third stomach or something. I'm not sure about how cow's stomachs work. But our approach to the Word of God could be similar, could it? couldn't it? That we not just pass over it, but we actually think about it. And then we go back and we think about it. We read it from, read it from my perspective in life, but, but how, would, how would my neighbor read this? Or how would my enemy read this? Um, and what is it telling me to do? Can I put my name in the passage? There's all kinds of things we can do to meditate in God's word. We can memorize it. That's another way of getting it deeper into our lives. So when he says, think on these things, the Apostle Paul is saying, here's, here's how the things you ought to think about and really consider them. Really deeply consider them. 
meditate on these things is the word the New King James uses, and it's a fine word, meditate. And then the last verse, not only are we to think right and, and not pray right and think right, but we're to do right. So he says in verse 9, the things that you've learned from me and received and heard and saw in me, these do, he says, these do. So Paul is saying, look, I've taught you, I've been with you, you've seen me, you've watched me. I want you to do the same things, do as I do. Not only trust God, but obey God. Action should follow attitude. And, you know, we don't have an excuse not to be at peace and not to be obedient. When we hear the words coming from the Apostle Paul who sat in a prison cell, not knowing what would happen to him the next day. And yet, he's telling us to be at peace. So, do the right things. Put into practice the virtues that he's just listed for us. Communicate with others. Use social media to encourage, not to scare, not to agitate people. There's no disconnect between what we should know and what we should do. And Paul's saying, if you think about things that are virtuous and praiseworthy and good and pure, then you also ought to do those things and live that way. And then there's a wonderful promise that comes at the end of that. And the God of peace will be with you. Again, he's inverted the words. If we pray, the peace of God will guard our hearts. But now he says, if we do the right things, the God of peace will be with you, with us. I think Paul's expressing a personal way that we can come to know God as a God of peace is to practice what he tells us to do. And when he does, the peace of God, which comes from the God of peace, will be with us. So when he says it, it will be with us, I, have, I think he's saying more than it's just a, a propositional truth that the peace of God will be with us. It's an experiential truth that we will experience the God of peace, the peace of God that comes from the God of peace. So what is he saying in our passage today? Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. Think about good things and then do good things. I believe that Jesus teaches that worry is a sin. In Matthew 6, he teaches us not to worry about tomorrow, not to worry about what we're going to eat or drink or what we're going to wear. So if Jesus tells us not to worry and if we worry, then it must be a sin. God knows what we need. He's, he'll provide it is what Jesus said. That does raise a question. If God knows what we need before we ask for it, why do we ask for it? Well, because it humbles us to come before God and recognize and admit that we have needs. And God rewards those who are humble, the scriptures say. So we submit to him our prayers in faith, in humility. We depend upon him, even though he knows our needs. And that prayer God will use to change things, to give us peace, to take away our worry and our fretting and our anxiety. 
But that's not the primary purpose of prayer, just to meet our needs. It's to be in fellowship with God in a life-changing relationship that will help Him communicate His love and grace to us. Pray right, think right, do right, and you'll experience the peace of God. I wonder if we were to, you know, everything seems to be measured these days. I've got these apps and they tell me more than I want to know about how many steps I've taken or how fast my heart is beating, how many calories I've burned. Where's the app that says, how much time do we spend worrying each day? Now, I would like that app. How much time do we spend worrying each day? How much time do we spend praying to God about the things we would want to worry about? That would be a useful app. I could use that one. How much time do we spend giving thanks to God? Well, I think we would all agree that there's many things in life that face us. I don't know what you face today and what you might feel like you're worrying about. Maybe it's a health issue, maybe it's a financial issue, maybe it's a relationship problem that you're having. There's plenty of things we could worry about, we know. How are you handling those? Can you find peace in that storm? You can if you bring it to God. And you can't have the peace of God until you have the God of peace. And that's why Jesus Christ came to this earth and took the body of a human being so that he could die for our sins and bring us and connect us again to God so that sin is no longer a barrier, that mankind can be at peace with God. And you and I could be at peace with God with our sins erased and forgiven and forgotten forever by simple faith in Jesus Christ who died for our sins, rose from the dead, and offers us eternal life. And we believe Him for that gift of eternal life. We can begin to experience the peace of God and the God of peace. But you can't have the God of peace or the peace of God until you have the God of peace. And the God of peace comes to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.